In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. No one ever says, when I grow up, I want to be weak. I never want to be thought of as weak and almost never in my life have said, I am weak. Except maybe as an excuse as to why I failed at something, especially sports. But here we have St. Paul boasting in his weakness. And not just any weakness, but a thorn in the flesh. When most of us think of weaknesses, we probably think of areas in our lives that need improvement. I need to get more organized. I need to work on being punctual. I should go to the gym more often. These are things that we can readily admit to others, but normally don't cause us much embarrassment. But St. Paul was very much in touch with his weakness. We don't know what it is that the apostles struggled with, But he cried out for deliverance three times to the Lord. Paul was used to praying and having the Lord answer his prayers in the affirmative. But here he encounters no. It probably wouldn't take us, any of us, very long to determine our own thorn in the flesh. We know that it's not about professional improvement or joining Toastmasters, but something that might be shameful. A failure, a fear, a besetting sin, a circumstance, a physical ailment that keeps you from living life to the full. It is not something that is easily shrugged off, but it plagues you. Paul says that this thorn was sent to harass him. The Greek word used here for harass is also the Greek word used to describe being punched in the face over and over and over again. This is not something that goes away, but is with you even as you close your eyes to go to bed at night and is there to greet you when you wake up in the morning. It's probably a good thing that we don't know what St. Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Lots of people through the years have had lots of ideas about what it might be. Because the real issue before us this morning is What are our afflictions? What is your thorn in the flesh? Where do these thorns come from? Most of us think that they are the result of our own actions. I've been bad, and so God must be punishing me. Or, as Christians, we might think that we're under attack from the enemy. There may be some truth to the latter. We are under assault from the devil. But in Paul's case... God consented to his thorn in the flesh. Even though the agent was a messenger of Satan, God allowed it to happen. He allowed the torment. Why? Jesus says to Paul in answer to his prayer, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What could Jesus mean? And how does St. Paul respond to this response to his prayer for deliverance? Jesus is saying to us all this morning that his grace is all sufficient. It never comes up short. It is always in supply. It is never failing and it is unending. 
If your thorn this morning is a failure or a besetting sin, know that God's grace is still greater than even your sin. When you have tried everything to make up for your shortcomings and done all that you know to do to stop whatever it is you're trying to stop doing, know this. God's office is at the end of your rope. If you are dealing with a physical ailment or personal trial or some circumstance this morning, God's grace is sufficient for you too. Jesus said that he himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither there shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You might be thinking this morning that because of your suffering, God couldn't possibly be with you. But hear the Lord Jesus himself saying to you, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have come to call. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In fact, it seems that sometimes our thorns in the flesh are God's way of having us see more and more of his grace in our lives. In the 1700s in Olney, England, a little village right outside of London to the north, the local Church of England minister was a man by the name of John Newton. You probably know who he is. He was a slave trader turned Church of England minister who wrote... Some of the most famous hymns that one we sang this morning, glorious things of thee are smoking. Uh, yes, glorious things of thee are spoken. And even uh, uh, and well, some besetting sins are harder than others. Uh, they will find you out. Uh, glorious things of thee are spoken. And of course, even amazing grace. And there was a man in only by the name of William Cooper, who in his own right was an amazing hymnist. Except for one thing, William Cooper through his whole entire life, was plagued with depression and insanity. And not just sort of the kind that would send you to bed, but several times Cooper had to be completely institutionalized in order to keep himself from harm. And it was during one of these bouts that actually did not drive just Cooper to despair, but drove Newton to despair as well. Because here they were trying to compile this hymnal, these wonderful hymns, and Newton thought for sure, surely this is God. God has called us to do this. This is a wonderful venture. And yet it seems, and he writes this in the preface to the only hymnal, it seems as if God himself is keeping this from happening. And it was in this difficult time that he wrote this hymn. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell Assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds 
and laid me low. Lord, why is this a trembling cry? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Paul's response, like that of John Newton, was not when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. People, well-meaning people, will tell you to accept your suffering. Some will tell you to avoid suffering. And others will tell you to embrace suffering for its own sake. But St. Paul, whose life was changed by Jesus Christ, sees that the gospel engulfs suffering. How is that? How in the midst of pain and suffering and a thorn in the flesh which repeatedly is punching you in the face, can you have hope? He has hope because Jesus was raised from the dead and is now alive and everything is changed. The word hope in ordinary English vocabulary is generally distinguished from certainty. We would say, I don't know what's going to happen But I hope it happens. When we read the word hope in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope I get into heaven. That's absolutely not what is meant by Christian hope. Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen, and you put your trust in that promise. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. This is what we pray in our post-communion prayer when we say that we are heirs through hope of thy eternal kingdom. Not, I hope I get into heaven, fingers crossed, but that we will be there because we are heirs of God's promise and we hope in him and his work on the cross for our salvation. This is our Christian hope in the midst of suffering. We have hope because we look forward to that eternal kingdom. And heaven is simply not compensation for things we've lost and the things we've never had. It's not unlimited golf tea times. It's not simply mom's apple pie. But it's in fact a restoration of all things that are fallen. Everything that has been subject to suffering, to pain, to trial, to tribulation, everything that is sinful and broken down will be made new. Everything will be set to rights. I have often, I haven't had in several years because I figured out what triggers it. Um, I have these vivid nightmares. I think they're called night frights. And uh, I failed to tell Lauren this before we were married, um, which made some interesting nighttime, three in the morning conversations. But I have these vivid nightmares where I think that things are actually happening that are happening in my dreams. And one night I had a terrible nightmare uh, that I'd lost my family, that they had become subject to a violent death. And I woke up and I thought it had really happened. I had 
tears streaming down my face and had an incredible sense of loss. And then I looked and saw my wife, well, alive. And I I didn't wake her up because she would say, what are you doing? It's three in the morning. Uh, But I crept upstairs into the nursery of our then little baby Lily and I just looked down in the crib with her. And not in spite of that nightmare, but because of that nightmare and suffering, did I understand what it meant to have things set to rights. And because of it, that I love my family with an intensity that I had never known before. Even in spite of thinking that I had lost them, things had been set right and well again. And that is what God promises us in the midst of our suffering, that he is a deliverer and he is coming and that our hopes will be realized. And that he will set all things right. And like St. Paul, we will say that we will gladly more boast of all our weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon us. For the sake of Christ, then, we are content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when we are weak, then are we made strong. His grace is sufficient for you, and His power is made perfect and our weakness. Hope in Him. Amen.